You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. When Pilate, then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which, we, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone, by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Thank you, Daniel, for reading for us from the <clears throat> resurrection account in Matthew. I love each resurrection account is a little bit different with a little bit more detail or um, shed some different light on exactly what took place that Sunday morning. I love the account in Matthew just because, one, it feels so historical, you know, and I, and I hope that we understand that when we talk about the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus and the future resurrection of ourselves as believers, that it's tied to a historical event that Jesus rose from the dead over 2,000 years ago. And, and in this account, you see such panic and anticipation from the enemy, right? You see this anticipation that he taught on his resurrection, and so they try to go to great lengths and great measures to make sure that once they've killed Jesus, that they keep him dead, that, that there's no possibilities of a resurrection story getting out. And so uh, they, take great, they take great care to make sure that the body is sealed and contained and protected, and, and yet you see the, 
uh, the resurrection burst forth onto the scene there in, in Matthew 28. And uh, even the, um, the failure to embrace what is actually happening by the enemy as the enemy scrambles and tries to concoct a story that will try to protect uh, what they had done to Jesus three days earlier. And, and we know that the church springs forth from uh, the resurrection witnesses and the stories that are accounted for. And uh, they can't stop the gospel from going forth as people begin to respond time and time again to what they've heard about that Sunday morning. I want to take just a few minutes this morning to uh, reflect upon the resurrection and, and the meaning that it has for us today. As I shared with you earlier, I know that at our church we try to make the resurrection and the hope of Jesus' return a constant reminder to us. And so while this is Easter Sunday, um, it's certainly consistent with what we try to do every Sunday morning, and that's celebrating the resurrection. But specifically taking some time today to look at some specific passages in Scripture, I think, that uh, can give us hope as we seek to encourage others, maybe even today as we gather with family and friends. Today, celebrating a physical being in a historical event. That's what the resurrection is. That's what Easter is all about. It's about us celebrating Jesus who came into physical form, right? He's, he's all God. He's 100% God, a spiritual being, and yet he subjected himself to the physical. And we believe one of the core doctrines of our faith is that Jesus came as a physical being, a being that could be touched a being that ate and drank and slept and subjected himself to suffering. John talks about it in 1 John chapter 1, that, that he can attest to the fact that he has spent time with this physical Jesus. And so we celebrate Jesus in his physicalness, coming and subjecting himself to, um, to death for us on our account, and then the historical event of the resurrection. Our summary sentence for this morning that I want you to take away this morning, uh, as believers, we place our hope in Jesus a physical being who accomplished a historical event, freeing us from our greatest enemy by providing us with resurrection now and when he returns. We're going to talk about what that means. But as believers, we place our hope in Jesus, a physical being who accomplished a historical event, freeing us from our greatest enemy by providing us with resurrection now and when he returns for our kids, Jesus came to this earth, lived, died, and rose again in order to defeat death. And if we become a Christian, we will one day be resurrected just like him. As you're writing that down, I was, we were celebrating the resurrection in our chapel service this week. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited and I'm, and I'm joyous over the, the songs that we were singing and the implications of what they mean and kind of looking out at our students and, and not always seeing the same joyous expression from them and, and maybe kind of a disconnect between why we celebrate an event that took place so long ago. It, it immediately, immediately made me think of, of, of just a, a mindset that we're celebrating a victory and maybe at times for our kids as they're being raised, it feels like something that took place so long ago um, that doesn't have any bearing on life today. I sent a, an email to our parents this week, just some thoughts that I was having. You know, as a, as a football fan, as a fan of the University of Georgia, it feels like forever ago since we won a national championship. And to talk about that victory from 1980 seems silly at times because of how long ago it was. The resurrection is so different than that, right? It's a victory that was won 2,000 years ago, but it's a victory that is still playing itself out today. Right? As we see death around us, and, some, and, we, and we know that of people that have lost loved ones and family members even within the last couple of weeks, and we see the victory over death still playing itself out over 2,000 years later. Right? It's not a historical event that took place in time past and has no relevance for us today. It is certainly an event that is still 
It is still resonating in human history even now. Um, As Jesus came, he accomplished a historical event, and it freed us from our greatest enemy by offering us resurrection now and when he returns. Talking about this greatest enemy of death, we've seen several videos this morning that have drawn our attention to death. Scripture talks about death being an enemy of ours as human beings. Um, You know, as I was studying and kind of thinking, why is death such a feared enemy by us? And I jotted down just a few things. One, it creates separation, right? Death creates separation between those that we love. Death is something that separates, it divides. Even in the Garden of Eden, while physical death did not take place immediately, we see the separation that it created for Adam and Eve from their heavenly father, right? They're driven out of the Garden of Eden. They're driven away from the tree of life so that they don't uh, partake and then condemn themselves for all eternity. Death creates separation. We also know that death has no limits, right? It's not a respecter of persons. And in our human understanding, it claims even what we would classify as the innocent. I was reading yesterday, studying, I was reading about a, a former football player who accidentally um, hit his child with his car when he was moving it in his driveway. Even the, the strongest, deepest Christian reads an article like that about the death of a three-year-old and can't help but ask why. Why them? Why that situation? Why that individual? Death is no respecter of persons, right? We're all subjected to death. Scripture says that we will all die unless Jesus comes uh, before that, that we've, we're born into sin, we, we experience death because of our sin, and it's a great enemy of ours as human beings. I think probably the biggest reason it's such a feared enemy is that it's a problem that we're unable to fix, right? The world has done everything possible to try to delay death, ignore death, uh, to try to postpone death, to escape it. Uh, we've created products that try to mask Uh, the age and the death that's coming upon us, right? We've done everything that we can to escape it and to fix the problem, and yet we continue to fail. Uh, We are unable to create a product or any type of um, device or tool that will keep us alive forever, right? We all uh, succumb to death. In fact, I I read where um, the last person from the 1800s died this week. They were 117 years old. Like, like that blows my mind that somebody was still alive from the 1800s. And it was the last person that we know of that was still alive from that time. And, and even they who, who's lived far longer than anybody that we probably know died at 117 years old. Um, and they're no longer walking here on this earth. Death is a feared enemy. It is a great enemy. And the gospel answers the question for us, how do we conquer death? How do we conquer death? Our summary sentence here is that we have placed our hope in a physical being who has accomplished a historical event. We've talked a lot of times in our church about how faith, um, we try to take it out from the, the high lofty thinking, and we've tried to define faith simply as trusting truth, right? Faith is simply putting our trust in things that are true, right? And so what I try to do every Easter is I try to remind you of the historical facts that are accepted by believers and non-believers. And that's an important key there. I, I took a, um, a class in seminary with Gary Habermas, who is a world-renowned expert on the resurrection and a defender of the resurrection when it comes to apologetic settings. Thoroughly blessed to have had him in that class, and his uh, knowledge of the resurrection came forth, and this was something that he constantly brought to the attention of the seminary students at Liberty, 
that these are historical facts that are accepted by the worst enemies of the gospel. These are people who have dedicated their life to trying to disprove the resurrection, right? These are the the Pharisees of today who would want nothing more than to stop the rumors that Jesus is back from the dead. And in their studies and in their attempts to stop the story of the resurrection, they admit that these things are true. These are not things that can be disproved. These are things that are very much true, and even the worst skeptic believes these things. First, that Jesus died by crucifixion, that there was a literal, physical human being named Jesus, and he was killed on a cross. Secondly, that he was buried, that the the body came off the cross and was placed in a tomb. It wasn't left on the cross to rot. It wasn't discarded in any other way, that it was physically buried back into this earth. The skeptics believe this. Number three, that Jesus's death caused the disciples to despair and lose hope. While Jesus had taught about his resurrection, it was not being anticipated by his disciples. They had allowed it to go in one ear and out the other, and they were in a state of despair. They had lost hope because their Messiah was dead. Believers and non-believers agree to this. Number four, Jesus' tomb was discovered to be empty. Not only do they believe that Jesus was buried, they believe that everybody's perception of where he was buried was found to be empty three three days later. Disciples had experiences that led them to believe they were appearances of a resurrected Jesus. Disciples had experiences that led them to believe they were appearances of a resurrected Jesus. So they believe, even the worst skeptics believe, that that the disciples saw things and really hung their hat on things that made them believe that Jesus was back from the dead. Number six, disciples were transformed from being fearful to identify themselves with Jesus to bold proclaimers of Jesus. Skeptics believe that the disciples were sorrowful, they had lost hope, that their physical Messiah had died, his body had been buried, and that three days later, that burial place was found to be empty, and they began to see things and experience things that led them to no longer be fearful to die, but instead to align themselves with Jesus, even if it meant death. Resurrection was the center of preaching in the early church. Number eight, this message specifically started in Jerusalem where Jesus had died and was buried. The the easiest place to disprove such a message is where it actually starts. If there was any any truth to finding Jesus' body, if there was any possibility of um, disproving it whatsoever, that's where you would find the most evidence, where he was killed and where he was buried. And that's where the message begins to go forth. And people are responding to it. Number nine, the message resulted in the church being born and Sunday becoming a primary day of worship, right? And that's why we have two-day weekends because of the Jewish perspective that Saturday is the Sabbath and that Christians worship on Sunday. And so rather than trying to to manipulate schedules, employers just got together and said, we'll give you both days off, which is is awesome, right? We get two-day weekends. And so I appreciate the confusion over which day we should should worship on. Um, But Sunday shifts to becoming the primary day of worship for the church and for believers, for those that align themselves with Jesus at this point because of Resurrection Sunday. And then number 10, some of the greatest skeptics at that time, skeptics today believe, were converted. So the greatest skeptics of today 
say that the greatest skeptics 2,000 years ago were converted to this message of resurrection. James, the brother of Jesus, Paul, who had been killing Christians. That's all stuff that the, the non-believers believe, right? Like this isn't, this isn't your pastor, this isn't a Sunday school teacher trying to convince you to believe in the resurrection and trying to portray a story that may or may not be true. This is the true story. This is exactly what happened. And even the people that don't worship today believe that this happened, which leaves us with possible conclusions that his body was stolen and that's why it was empty and people convinced the disciples that he was back or that he didn't really die, that he just got up out of the grave and uh, maybe his, his tomb was wrongfully identified, that everybody went to the wrong tomb. And we've talked before about why those are weak arguments and we won't get into that today, but the last conclusion is that he was resurrected. There's no body. They've never been able to produce a body of Jesus. Even the enemies that tried to guard and protect the tomb could never do so. 500 people saw him after he was resurrected. Not 500 individuals at various times, but 500 people all at one time. And then people's lives were radically changed, all supporting the resurrection. The gospel answers our question, how do we conquer death? And, and it's a historical event that we, that we put our faith and hope and trust in. We are trusting in truth. These are historical things that happened surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. And so when we say that we have faith that Jesus rose from the dead, we are not simply saying that we hope that he rose from the dead. We are saying that we have evaluated the evidence. We've evaluated the evidence that has been brought to us by people that don't believe this. And based on the evidence that's been laid forth, we have put our faith and trust in the only thing that makes sense, that Jesus Christ has come back from the dead. And so that's what makes it a historical event, that there are historical uh, things that happen. There's data that we can evaluate and talk about. And so it is an event that we celebrate. Three things that I want to share with you this morning, and then we will partake of the Lord's Supper and hopefully send you off to spend time with family and friends to celebrate the meaning of this Sunday. Number one, this is an event that was planned by God. This is an event that was planned by God. For kids, Jesus taught his disciples that he would die and rise again. This is an event that was planned by God. Sometimes we miss this, and somewhere down the road, hopefully we'll uh, actually work our way through one of the Gospels um, on Sunday mornings in our teaching time. But sometimes we forget the fact that Jesus went to great lengths to talk about his resurrection and his death prior to it happening, right? Um, number one, Jesus anticipated his resurrection. He knew it was coming. It wasn't something that caught him off guard or surprised him. And it certainly shouldn't have been something that surprised the disciples. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it says that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This became his discipleship lesson. This became the message that he was portraying to his disciples that this is what is going to happen. If you continue to read, you find that Peter doesn't like the discipleship lesson for the day and tries to fight back and tries to argue against this being what is going to happen. Right? He misses the end part that I'm coming back from the dead. Peter, can't, Peter gets hung up on the idea that, no, you're going to be killed for, for things that you don't deserve to be killed for, right? And so he tries to attack Jesus' plan. But it's something that Jesus was very intentionally teaching his disciples, which, again, lends support for the validity of the resurrection, that this wasn't something that caught God off guard. Matthew chapter 20, 
verses 17 through 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. I mean, he's given them a complete prequel to what is about to happen. So even if, if they were around and close enough to see the beatings, this should have been anticipated by the disciples as Jesus was very faithful to teach upon it. Matthew 28, which we've already read this morning, and Luke 24, after the resurrection, you have individuals talking about this is happening just like Jesus said it was supposed to. Number two, the enemy feared the implications of resurrection. This was an event that was planned by God. Jesus is teaching on it, and the enemy, Satan, and everyone that he's influencing begins to pick up on how dangerous resurrection would be. In John chapter 11, verse 45, events surrounding the resurrection of Lazarus. In John eleven forty-five. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, raising Lazarus, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. There's great concern by the enemy that resurrection is really starting to convert the masses. In chapter 12, verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Before Jesus is even raised from the dead, there's this anticipation of what he's able to do through his friend Lazarus. Resurrection becomes a real threat to the enemy. This is an event that was planned by God, which is so important when we think and when we teach our kids about the resurrection, that this is not something that God reacted to. This is something that God planned from the very beginning, right? This was God's plan for defeating death. We allow death to enter this world, and Jesus is very intentional about exiting it from his creation. Number two, it's an event that is to be shared with others. It's an event that was planned by God, but it's also an event that is to be shared with others. For our kids, believing in Jesus means believing in his resurrection. When we talk about believing in Jesus and having faith in Jesus, we certainly must tie that to his resurrection. It's an event that is to be shared with others. This is especially true because it's necessary for believing the gospel. It is necessary for believing the gospel. John chapter 11, verse 25. This is prior to Lazarus being raised from the dead. Jesus and Martha having a conversation. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus tying belief in the resurrection to belief in the gospel and a need for salvation. In Romans chapter 4, a passage that has been given to us, uh, a recounting of an Old Testament story. In uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 18, a reminder of all that we talked about with Abraham. It says, in hope, talking about Abraham, he believed against hope 
that he should become the father of many nations. And as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Okay, so Abraham obviously believes that God, and we talked about this when we went through Genesis, that God can bring life out of death, that basically him and Sarah's bodies were dead. They were incapable of procreating. God brings life from that death, right? And then it goes on to say that he's fully convinced that God is able to do what he said he would do. You tie that passage to uh, Hebrews, tie that passage to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 through 19, says that as he was offering Isaac as a sacrifice, he was fully convinced that God could bring Isaac back from the dead to keep his promise, right? Abraham, his life really takes off and his faith really is deepened when he connects the fact that God is able to resurrect. Romans chapter 10 very clear presentation of what is necessary for salvation. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your, or in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The resurrection is, is the culmination of the gospel. It is necessary for us to believe in the resurrection in order for us to be saved. In Philippians chapter uh, 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Belief in the resurrection is necessary for believing the gospel. Number two, belief in the resurrection defined the early church. It was a defining moment for the early church. It's what defined them within their message. As the church begins to grow and people begin to be added to their numbers, it's based on the resurrection. Acts chapter 4, verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. For it is already evening, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. What are they talking about? What are they sharing? It's the resurrection. They're talking about Jesus being back from the dead. In fact, we've defined before that a Christian is someone who believes in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and lives in light of the implications of that event. To be a Christian means to believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ and to then live in light of the implications of that event. A quote that I try to share regularly on Easter comes from Sam Storms, who is a pastor. It says, I can honestly say that I've staked my life on an empty tomb. Everything I am, everything I own, everything I've done or hope to do hangs suspended on whether or not Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. 
The decision I made decades ago to put my trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is only as good as the tomb is empty. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, my life is a sham. I've invested everything in, staked everything on, entrusted everything to the historical fact of the empty tomb of Jesus. If his body and bones are still buried somewhere in Palestine or have long since disintegrated under the force of time and the law of physics, nothing has meaning for me, nor do I have meaning for anything or anyone else. It's an event that is to be shared with others. It's, it's what defines us as Christians. It, it clarifies our message to a dying world that our Messiah, that our Savior died in our place and rose again. Lastly, it's an event that should be enjoyed now and forever. It's an event that should be enjoyed now and forever. For our kids, when Jesus returns, Christians will receive new bodies. It's an event that should be enjoyed now and forever. And we'll talk more about this as we get into the book of Revelation, some of the the things that already are, but not fully yet. Things that that are still playing themselves out, yet things that seem to be true even now. And this is certainly true of our resurrection. Number one, our future resurrection is tied to our resurrection now. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is John chapter 5, verse 19. John chapter 5, verse 19, it says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show them so that you may marvel. For, the fa- for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Okay, so he's talking about a future resurrection, but then Jesus really says that there's a resurrection that we already possess right now. It says, verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Talking about the spiritual resurrection that we enjoy, right? That there's a spiritual death that we are uh, involved in right now. And as the gospel comes in and the Holy Spirit convicts and draws us, we experience resurrection where we come to life now. Verse 26, for as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of God. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, and this is not yet here, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Our future resurrection is tied to our current resurrection. Will we be resurrected to life and eternity with Christ? It depends on if we've been resurrected now. If we cross from death to life now, have we accepted the good news of Jesus Christ and believed in his resurrection now. Number two, our future resurrection is secure in God's will. Our future resurrection is secure in God's will. John chapter six, verse 38, a familiar passage to us about the security of the believer says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up 
on the last day, right? Jesus securely holds on to believers, doesn't lose any of us, right? We, we, don't, we don't lose our salvation. He clings to us. Why? So that he can raise us up on the last day. It's a future resurrection that's secured in his will. Number three, our future resurrection frees us from hopeless sorrow. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, a passage that we studied intently as a church several years ago, reminds us, Paul says, I'm giving you this information about the future so that you won't sorrow as individuals who have no hope, right? He says, I wanna tell you that, that believers that have gone before you, they will come with Jesus when he returns and they'll be reunited with their bodies. The thing that we try to do every Easter with our family, some of you know this, is that we take our kids and we visit the gravesides of, of loved ones from our family that they've never met before. People that have died, that claim to be Christians, that are a part of our family that our kids have never met. And so we take them to visit my grandparents. Um, and, and we talk to them about their life. We tell stories about them. But we talk about the fact that their body is here in this grave. Their body is still here in this ground. And while we can say, yes, they are in a better place right now. Yes, they are with Jesus. We talked this, this Friday night. I talk, we were talking to AJ and Abram. I said, they are looking forward to Jesus coming back because they want to be back with their bodies, right? God created us to have bodies and they are separated from their bodies right now. And I cringe, I cringe when I'm around people and I never address it because it's certainly not appropriate to address it at the time. I cringe when I'm around people who have just experienced death and they talk about their loved one as though they are with Jesus with their body right now. And it's a misunderstanding of the hope that we have. They don't have their bodies right now right? We are looking forward to the day that Jesus comes back and we all get bodies at the same time. We all get bodies at the same time. That's a clear teaching there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that we don't sorrow as those who have no hope, that as we go to funerals, we don't sorrow like one who will never see them again. Death has created separation like we talked about, but there'll be a reuniting because of Jesus's victory over death. Number four, our future resurrection empowers us to persevere now. Our future resurrection empowers us to persevere now. Jesus' resurrection is all about our future resurrection, right? Jesus subjected himself to the physical. He died the physical. He was resurrected physically so that we can enjoy those things as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50, a passage that's all about the resurrection talks about Jesus coming back. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. That trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. This perishable body will put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Paul ties the future resurrection to our current perseverance. He says, because you know what's coming, because you know that death is gonna be defeated, because you know that you have victory over death in the future, persevere now, hold fast now. It's an event that was planned by God, thoroughly planned by him, thoroughly anticipated, thoroughly presented prior to. It's an event that we're to share with others. It's, it's our gospel message. It's the culmination of the gospel that Jesus is back from the dead. And it's an event that should be enjoyed now and forever. 
we that are Christians have already experienced a resurrection. We are alive spiritually today, looking forward to that future resurrection where our bodies will be changed. A final thought to leave you with today as we celebrate this truth is that the Bible begins and ends with death, with Jesus ultimately setting us free from our greatest enemy. The Bible begins and ends with death, with Jesus ultimately setting us free from our greatest enemy. Romans 8 talks about the the idea that creation is longing and waiting for the day that Jesus comes back because it has been subjected to slavery, that sin has perverted God's creation. But in Revelation 21, which is going to be great when we get to this study, such a hopeful passage, it says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Hebrews 2 says that we've been set free from that fear of death. And as a passage we've studied recently, Revelation 1, Jesus holds the keys to death. He's defeated our greatest enemy. A historical event that has continued ramifications today. It's a victory that's still being won. It's a victory that still is resonating as people are still coming to faith in Christ. That's a message that we're called to take. Easter is a celebration of Jesus beating death. We want to close today by celebrating uh, through the partaking of the Lord's Supper. It's a tool that God has given us to celebrate the resurrection, uh, to remember the death of Christ. But what's tied to it in 1 Corinthians 11 is that we do this until Jesus comes back. And so we certainly would not be celebrating a death if there was not hope attached to his death. And so by partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning, we are celebrating that as a church here locally We are celebrating the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and what that means for our salvation, that he is our righteousness, he is our perfection, and that he bears the penalty of our sins for us. And that by rising from the dead three days later, it gives us hope, too, of resurrection, that while death creates separation now, there is a great reuniting that is coming because of the victory that he won and continues to win 2,000 years ago. So we're going to invite you to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. We're going to give you a chance to reflect and pray as well. Just as a reminder here at Sovereign Hope, you do not have to be a member to partake. We encourage all believers to partake, but we do encourage it to be believers that are partaking because it's believers who are anxiously looking forward to Jesus coming back. And so we invite believers to partake this morning. This in no way is meant to save you. Um, Just as further clarification, this is simply a reminder of what has already taken place in our life, that Christ has come and he has saved us by his work. And through his resurrection, we have great hope in our future. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and we certainly praise you and thank you as we seek to do every Sunday for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you for an event that took place in history that Jesus, who was a spiritual being, came and took on the physical while he's always been God. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to become a man. And we're thankful that that picture remains in place even today, that when Jesus took on humanity, he kept the humanity. Father, we're thankful that you, you, uh, you pulled Jesus out from the tomb three days later 
that the power of resurrection is put forth on display. And God, we're thankful that that same power exists for us as well, that you have called us from death to life spiritually, that you have opened our eyes through the work of the Holy Spirit so that we can see the greatness of Jesus, so that we can see the the evil of our sin and we can repent and turn to you. And Father, we're thankful for what that means in the future, that when Jesus returns, we will fully experience the resurrection that we've talked about today, that Jesus is the first fruits of what we will all experience. And so God, as we face death, as we are around people that are facing death, Lord, I pray that we would not sorrow as those who have no hope, that we would be reminded constantly that you have defeated death. You have saved us from our greatest enemy, that you've given us an event to talk about, a historical event that can be shared with others, a historical event that has so many facts surrounding it that even the the greatest skeptics believe so much about it. God, help us to take that truth and connect it for those that we work with, for those that are part of our families. Help us to guide them into seeing the truth of the resurrection. We want to be a church that spreads the same message that the church of Acts was spreading, that Jesus is back from the dead. And God, I pray that message would continue to go forth and would continue to call people to salvation. We're thankful that that time is now where people can go from death to life. Father, we thank you for the chance to celebrate that through the Lord's Supper this morning. I pray that through this act, through visibly seeing others who have committed their life to you, that we would be encouraged to persevere as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. That we would look forward to that day when Jesus returns. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.